1: And this ain't no true crime podcast. Honestly, you can't call this a history podcast because I'm no historian. I'm just a history fan that does some research and bullshits about it with his friends. So, Speaking of my friends, let me introduce you to my co-host. First with us today, we got DC. What up, doe? And then back with us after a long layoff. I'm excited to have you back. We got Tank. Hey, hope everybody's doing well. All right. Welcome back to the podcast, man.
2: Thanks, man. I'm excited. I'm glad to be back. First
1: time with DC, I'm pumped up. Nice for the drinks today. I took, a, you know, they always say that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Yes. Right. So I took a page from my boy Zach at Drinks with Great Men in History. I've talked about him on the podcast before, but he does theme drinks. So I figured we just yanked that idea from him and try that, <laughs> try that right. out for an episode. And uh, so today we all got the same one. The Atwater Brewery, which is, a, it's a local Detroit brewery, but it recently got bought out by Coors. I guess technically if you're a craft beer aficionado, <laughs> it is no longer, it's now the enemy. It's not truly a local beer, but the flavor, it's still just as good. So, I mean, I don't
3: know. As long as they don't change the formula and they keep bringing out, like, keep the tradition of what Atwater is alone. I'll still drink it. <laughs> right.
1: They, they don't go Ray Kroc and turn it into, uh, you know, the McDonald's of, you know, at, of breweries. Yes. But yeah, so we got this uh, Atwater Brewery, Purple Gang Pilsner. Either of you guys ever had it before?
2: I haven't had it. This is my first time having it. Atwater was my favorite brewery, man. What ended up happening was I can't find my favorite beer ever, and uh, <laughs> so then next thing I knew I started drinking IPAs, and it's it's kind of gotten left in the dust now. But anyways, um, they got a lot of good brews, man, and this one is right there with it. I mean, it's a clean pilsner. It's something you could probably drink all day if you wanted to, you know, session style, maybe at the golf course or something like. That. Yeah, it's pretty good, man.
3: So what was your favorite?
2: Okay, so it's called Voodoo Vader. Uh, They only brewed it every once in a while. I know that one. Yeah, (laughs) man. Dude, it's been years. At least three. Uh, No, maybe even more. I mean, yeah, I haven't been able to find it anywhere, and I... I got a sneaky suspicion that when Coors bought them out, that they discontinued it. So (laughs) like what what you were saying earlier, and I could be wrong. I haven't done enough research on it. I just, I search for it all the time on the beer app can never find it. So like what you were saying, like, I really was butthurt when Coors (laughs) bought them. I'm like, these motherfuckers bought them out. And now my voodoo Vader is nowhere to be found. You ass wipes. But anyways, that um, before IPAs, and what I mean before IPAs, like IPAs are all strong. So like before IPAs, I would seek out strong beers that I liked. And they usually meant like they were a little bit on the sweeter side and the darker side. You know, mm-hmm. give you that, that high alcohol kick. And that's why that one was my favorite brew because it was like 9.2. It's sweet enough to where if you drink too many of them, you probably... We'll get tired of it and mm-hmm. strong enough to where if you don't watch yourself, it'll
1: get you. <laughs> You'll you get know. in trouble. Yeah. Well, and you guys are both, you're not particular about style or brand or anything like that, as long as it's high gravity. Mm. Yes. <laughs> that is your primary concern.
3: Yeah. <laughs> for me on this uh, Purple Gang Pilsner, I like it a lot. Um, I waited to have my first taste as we start the podcast. I think it falls into, lock like what you were saying that you like for picnic summer beers because it's not a very high alcohol content but it tastes really good Mm -hmm. and i think it's one of those beers that you can drink quite a few of them at a barbecue and not like worry about being hammered
1: the first thing i want to get into kind of a big deal i think dc the mastermind put in a whole bunch of work we got us a website up and running badguypodcast.com you guys go check it out take a look around we got links to the episodes we got some reviews Uh, there's uh, a merch store which don't get too excited the merch is it's a work in progress but it's kind of like a sneak preview we are going to be putting together before the merch becomes available some kind of a giveaway Uh, but we haven't worked out the details i thought it was amazing dc did a great job so thanks for that thank you
3: thank you and of course um you know the show wouldn't be anything without the sponsors Of course, you got Six Fosueno for the music. You got Cancer for music and the logo. And so on the website also, there is a sponsor page. So please go to that page and support the sponsors of the show.
1: Right. So now you don't even, you don't got to go try and find them. Go straight to the website and, you know, (laughs) link to them, follow them on their social medias. You know, support local artists that are supporting us to keep this thing up and running. And then we're also now, we were only on Instagram, which we still are. You can follow us on Instagram at Bad Guy Podcast. We put up the pictures from the show, but we also got all kinds of different gangster memes, movie quotes, uh, Mike Tyson workout videos, <laughs> the hot MMA chicks—you you name it, just <laughs> anything I think is cool it goes on the Instagram. Basically, if you're sitting
3: around with your buddies drinking beer and something mm-hmm. you would think is cool, it's probably on the
1: Instagram. We also now have we're on Twitter at the Bad Guy Pod. Bear with me as I learn how to do it. I finally got the the hang of Instagram. You know, now I'm going to be trying to learn how to tweet. Since we now have a website, we now got a Twitter. I felt like that's a big deal. We should maybe do a big episode. And then, like I hinted to earlier, we're doing themed drinks. Uh, Anybody that listens regularly, we do the DEFCON scale at the end, which is a ranking system. And it's on the scale of Lee Murray to the Purple Gang. In the past, we've covered Lee Murray, and we've never covered the Purple Gang. So... To finally give people, and I guess it's kind of a bad concept to discuss something every single episode that we've never actually explained to the <laughs> listeners. So it seems like it's good a time of any to go ahead and cover them. So today we're going to be covering the Purple Gang.
0: It's ain't negotiation time. This is Scarface, final scene, fucking bazookas under each arm. Say hello to my little friend. Hell yeah.
1: Now, the Purple Gang, is oh, it's always been a big part of the show. For one, we're from Detroit. You know, if you're a mob fan, a gangster fan in the Detroit area, we didn't have the Chicago outfit. We didn't have have the five families. Our Prohibition-era gangsters were the Purple Gang. Yeah. And then in early carnations of the show, before I knew what we were doing, before we had equipment, before we had stuff published, we were trying to work out the kinks, and we had covered some different Purple Gang members. The tough thing is, it's which one do you decide mm-hmm. to cover? At some point, it went from any individual member to just the Purple Gang itself. Mm-hmm. And I figured... You know, why try and single something out? We'll just cover it from top to bottom. Right down. I like it. The Purple Gang, it started as a youth Street Gang on the Lower East Side of Detroit, Michigan, in the Hastings Street neighborhood that at the time was known as Little Jerusalem in the years preceding World War I. A lot of the this area at the time, when it sounds like, to me, a lot of the Purple Gang upbringing, if you've ever seen the movie Once Upon a Time in America... Uh, Robert De Niro plays Noodles. Yep, you know, made famous from Wu Tang. Now that's in the uh, the the Dumbo era of Brooklyn, I believe. But to me, that really has the feel of kind of the Purple Gang coming up, even though it's in New York. You know, these small, early nineteen hundreds neighborhoods and stuff like that.
3: And that neighborhood um, back in those days was like the place to be like right around slash next to the area of what became known as black bottom in Detroit. And it was like the, the area was almost like its own nightlife. Like you would think of a downtown area, but it wasn't downtown. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, from the the regular daytime life to the
1: nightlife to the underworld, if you wanted it, it was there. So this area at the time was primarily made of, of Eastern European Jewish immigrants, predominantly from Poland and Russia. Now, when it started off as a youth street gang, the key founding members were the Bernstein brothers, Abe, Joe, Raymond, and Izzy, and then two other brothers called the uh, Keywell brothers. They would operate in the area that we now know as Eastern Market, and they specialized in pickpocketing, rolling drunks, and then extorting cart merchants for protection. If the cart merchants wouldn't pay, they'd flip their carts, or they'd just throw their fruit, or smash a box, and stuff like that. I love that. It's like,
3: listen, pay me or you know what's gonna. Ha- I will flip this cart over. All the fruit on the
1: <laughs> <laughs>
3: like that is the threat. I love
1: it. <laughs> Talk about starting off like literally small potatoes. Right. Like, right. Where it talks about the rolling drunks. I mean, you guys, yeah. you guys familiar with what that is?
2: This is what came to mind. Unfortunately, when you have too many drinks at the Gentleman's Club and if you pass out and then they basically just get to name your price, name their price after that. You know, if you're back in the in the room getting a dance and you pass out and then she wakes you up a song later and says, hey, you owe me seven songs <laughs> worth of dances. That's what I thought of when I thought of rolling drunks, because I've seen a couple of uh, bachelor parties where uh, uh, somebody got rolled in. the But, yeah, I'm assuming it's catching a dude slammed either robbing them or
1: um... pretty, pretty much it's it's a form of robbery without mugging like i said we're still hitting at you young kids mm-hmm. so a still a grown man is a grown man mm-hmm. so as opposed to a mugging where you have to physically overpower them and beat them and sh- you would sometimes have somebody that worked with you at a bar that would give you hints to somebody that seemed like they had some money that was getting especially drunk or you would just keep an eye out on it and anybody that looked well to do that was drunk enough Instead of having to physically mug them, yeah, you could just kind of catch them in an alley, yeah, shove them down or whatever, take their stuff and then bounce out. And then by the time they get the shit back together, no, you know, nobody's going to listen to them. They're drunk anyways. Half so, the times they just pass out in that alley and then wake up in the morning. So is that
3: what you do, you know, back in the day when you and your buddy wanted to push a grown up over? And so one of them run behind him and get on the ground and turtle up and you push them and they automatically fall over your buddy? Or was that just me?
2: <laughs> no, I, well, I never tried it on an adult. I, I didn't have enough stones, man. I was doing it to my buddies and stuff. But I would have got my ass whipped if I did it to any of the people. They had to be the drunks. So you roll them over. Yeah. Uh, no, I could definitely <laughs> drunk. That'd be, I, I, that's technique number one for me if I'm rolling drunks is that move right there if I got me and a homie.
1: They would also, a lot of times, they would run errands for older local gangsters, too. Just small-time shit, working their way into the life. One question we get all the time, you always hear, is where the name Purple Gang come from? There's a couple ideas. One's really simple. Some people say one of the young members was an amateur boxer and would box in purple mm, trunks. Okay. Uh, another one comes from, now this sounds weird, but you got to hear it out. A shopkeeper said that they were bad kids. They were off color, like spoiled meat. They're purple. Mm, oh,
3: okay. I never heard that one, but that's interesting.
2: Uh, big fan of the Black Keys rock band, and they got their name because one of their uncles said, you're like the Black Keys on the piano. There's few of you, and you're not like the others, or something along those lines. So the Purple Spoiled Meat, that was kind of a good one.
1: I mean, we're talking about early, early 1900s. People talked a different way. Calling yeah. somebody tainted meat was a legitimate insult.
2: Yeah. <laughs> you're right, because I I used to work for a company, and uh, I worked with a dude, and he was from El Salvador, and he was in his 70s, and I asked him to teach me insults in spanish but not cuss words so i could mess with my buddy who was puerto rican and so he taught me how to say basically call him a dirty ox <laughs> you know what i mean right
1: so, see yeah it's the same yeah, thing like yeah. so yeah the purple gang yeah, the purple dirty, like, <laughs> <laughs> <You> dirty ox spoiled me The dirty ox it's a, it's a different different era
3: of yeah. that's how people communicate, yeah. you know? Not to mention just different cultures. Like an insult in one culture isn't necessarily an insult in another culture. So like to you, it would be like the weirdest thing. And it's, no, that's a really big insult. You don't understand what he just said. It's like, it's just me. What's the problem?
2: Exactly. <laughs> It's funny because my my buddy didn't think that that was too big of an insult, and I was like, "Dude, the guys from El Salvador." He's like, "Man, just because he could speak Spanish, don't mean it's still an insult in Puerto Rico." Oh, all right, man, good point. And, no, I was just saying, like, it yeah, didn't yeah. even end up working. I thought I was badass, and when I broke it out, he was like, "Yeah, all right. I mean, you barely called me a bl- a dirty ox or whatever." Like.
1: Uh, along the same train of thought, right? If we take someone from the cobbles of England, right? So we take Lee Murray, and we sit him at a table with somebody that's from the hills of Kentucky, right? Oh, yeah,
0: yeah.
2: And
1: then Lee Murray calls him a bloody tosser, you know? <laughs> that guy's gonna be like, what? What is that What the fuck are you talking?" Like, oh, uh, thank you, I Christ. guess. You know, in the meantime, that English guy's like, "Yeah, got him."
2: <laughs> like, and, and Paul would be behind him, like, "Got him." <laughs>
1: Everybody knows about Prohibition in 1920. Now, what a lot of people don't realize is that the state of Michigan banned liquor sales in 1917, way prior to Prohibition. Because there was this temperance movements by a lot of religious people. The movement was spearheaded by Henry Ford, who was in favor of a sober workplace. So he backed the Damon Act, and that was a state law that prohibited all sale of alcohol starting in 1918.
3: I did not know that, but it makes sense. And of course, as we know, uh, Henry Ford was a, a very powerful man, especially at that point in time. I mean, in Michigan, he was the empire. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying there were not other empires or car companies or whatever else, but- he was the it in Michigan. If he backed it in, and the amount of people he employed back then, I mean, if you were in the Metro Detroit area, you or someone directly related to
1: you worked for Fort. period. Right. So uh, he had a lot of power. The leader of the gang, the oldest of the Bernstein brothers. So he started it when it was a young street game. That's going to be the top left corner. That's Abe Bernstein. Once the Damon Act hits, this is when they made the transition from street game to organized crime. What they did was they came under the mentorship of these older Jewish mobsters in the area named Charles Leiter and Henry Shore, who owned the Oakland Sugar House, which was a crucial ingredient in making homemade alcohol stills.
3: That's something that's so obvious that you don't think to put together The person that has a sugar business being involved in probe it's like yeah. yeah that makes sense sugar grain oh okay i would have never thought about it
1: right you just think oh these good solid businessmen over there at the <laughs> Oak- oakland sugar house <laughs> exactly nowadays that would be like
2: the name of a fancy cafe or something that's what i thought would like, they
1: sell steaks
2: there for a second i didn't think actually a place where they had sugar <laughs>
1: Uh, the Purple Gang would work for them as muscle and enforcement for their alcohol shipments. And they developed a reputation for viciousness when they moved into armed robbery and hijacking rival organizations' truck shipments from Toledo. Okay. So at that time, since it was only a Michigan thing, the easiest route was to take 75 straight down, grab a bunch of liquor from Toledo, run it back up here. Basically, uh, lighter and sure. And then the Purple Gang, their thing was, you're only going to buy our shipments or you're going to use our sugar to make your own if you're trying to run your own shit in from Toledo, we'll just hijack you on the roads. Yep. And all this time, I thought that Michigan
3: and Ohio's rivalry was over football. <laughs> it was over liquor. <laughs> damn it.
1: <laughs> the more we do this podcast at the end of the day, it all comes down to liquor. It yeah. always comes down to liquor. <laughs> it's a liquor prohibition, moonshine, drying counties. It, it's all about people just wanting to catch a buzz yep. at the end of the day. Sometimes early on, you'll see the Purple Gang referred to as the Sugarhouse Gang. In reality, this was kind of a faction of the Purple Gang. So the Purple Gang, it'll never actually be f- structured like a crime family. It's kind of like a, a loose organizations of criminal factions that work together. Uh, Charles Leiter and Henry Shore, they had their own guys that worked with them too. And they bring in the Purple Gang as extra muscle. So the Sugarhouse Gang was technically just kind of that separate gang that okay. they worked together with you do research you'll see it'll pop up a lot of times purple gang also known as the sugar house gang that's not necessarily true as we go on you'll see it just this loose confederation of criminals as opposed to being i'm the boss and this is my underboss and these are the lieutenants and it was just kind of a bunch of criminals working together
3: that makes sense and, and i would understand why people would confuse them because if you see purple gangs kind of doing the muscle with the sugar guys and when you see them together it's like oh that's the sugar gang but the Purple Gang also does other things that's not with the sugar guys. So it's like, right. no, they're separate. But yeah, they're, they're together, but separate.
1: By the time Nationwide Prohibition hits on January 17th, 1920, they were already seasoned gangsters and they were just ready to cash in. They'd already began to develop their own independent rackets, but they would contract out muscle work for local gamblers and underworld figures. The Purple Gang's often credit it with the invention of the snatch racket, which... Snatch racket? Yes. That- you could go in so many directions
3: with that. <laughs> oh, I wonder if our great president has something to say about the snatch racket.
1: <laughs> the snatch racket was kidnapping wealthy gangsters and gamblers and holding them for ransom. Yeah. What was good about that, they have eventually uh, developed gang operators that specialized in just that. Mm-hmm. Like They just had these young, violent motherfuckers that were just trying to do like as little as possible. So like that was their whole shtick, was... You know, they'll kidnap people. And the crazy thing was, what the Purple Gang also did was hire out muscle to protect gamblers and gangsters that were operating in the area. So if you were coming to Detroit, you had two options. You could pay the Purple Gang to operate as your muscle, Mm -hmm. or you could get snatched and get ransomed out. That's what we call cornering the market. (laughs) Listen,
3: no matter which way you go, you're going to pay us. It's just how you want to pay. You can pay up front and we can be nice and protect you. Or you can pay on the back end while we probably torture you a little bit waiting for the money to come in. Which one would you like?
2: Damn straight. And that was before during those no cell phones you're in their turf i mean that's back when you're on the you're in the wrong part of town really meant you're in the wrong part of town no yeah. gps tracking yep yeah. <laughs> i mean earlier in the episode i'm like fuck that man you come try to take my goddamn produce cart you know but i mean fucking i guess not you know what i mean now that they got if they got any sort of weapons they got the numbers then then you have to pay up
3: yeah think about it even if you ran back in to make a call you had the rotary dial? <laughs> <laughs>
2: no, I think that might have been, been back in the time when you just picked up something, started talking to somebody, and they were patching.
3: They just kept yeah, Early 1900s, uh, yeah. yeah was... can, can you put me through to the
1: police? Uh, uh, Greenfield you call her 674, from again? please. And she's... Alice, we got another one kidnapped by the Purple Gang. <laughs> <laughs> Let's pass them through
2: to New York. Oh, yeah, you can drive out here. We'll see you in 40... Exactly. Fucking days. You know we'll be I mean? there right away. Yeah. Uh so three weeks? Yeah. Yes, right away.
3: Right.
1: They also used their knowledge of local distilleries and speakeasies to forcefully ensure that all corn sugar consumption came from the Oakland Sugar House. Early on, because of the days of the Damon Act, they knew which places were running speakeasies. Mm-hmm. Well now that it hit nationwide and a lot more people were trying to run their own stuff, they now knew since they used to deliver alcohol, everybody that was trying to sell alcohol. They would go to them directly and be like, well, look, we know you guys sell alcohol. Mm-hmm. How much sugar do you need? You yep. can make your own alcohol, but as far as ingredients, there's <laughs> yeah. only one place to get that. Yes. Well, so you, you had a choice. You could buy your alcohol from us, <laughs> or you could make your own with stuff that you made from us exactly. or bought from us.
3: Cornering the markets.
1: Anyone that refused to buy the sugar from the Oakland Sugar House was subject to beatings, destruction of property, arson, or murder.
3: So they were the original Frank White from Kings of New York. If a nickel bag gets sold in the park, I want in. Yeah. No matter what happens, we want in. That's it. End of story.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, that that's it. Like I said, now they're not even just doing alcohol. You know, no, if you want to gamble here, if you just even want to come here, you want to buy alcohol, you want to make alcohol, you name it. We want in. The Purple Gang in Detroit became a haven for muscle and gunmen nationwide but primarily Jewish gangsters from New York who came to participate in a wave of violence that's now known as the Sugar House Wars. Uh, local gangsters would refer to those New York Jewish guys as Yorkies. Among the most important of the Yorkies were Brooklyn gunmen Eddie Fletcher, and Abe Axler. Now, they were both small guys. Eddie Fletcher was a former boxer. He had once ran for alderman, and him and Abe Axler would basically become two of the most feared of the Purple Gang gunmen. They were so inseparable that they'd be referred to as the Siamese twins. The little guys are vicious. If you go out,
3: you get drunk at a bar or something like that, pick on the big, tall guy. He's probably not going to fight you. He's probably going to laugh it off. If you pick on the small guy, you're going to get drunk rolled. Then (laughs) then your cart's going to get flipped over. And then your place is going to get burned
1: down. Don't pick on the little guys. They're vicious. I think if you were to do the breakdown on it, now there's obviously a handful of guys we covered when you get into gangsters that are just your your classic, big, strong guy that were mm-hmm. able to beat, an, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They were able to kick ass and take names and just led into a life of crime based off that. I would guess, just off the top of my head, like 80% of them are guys. smaller guys yeah. that got something to prove, and they're scrappy and they're looking for action.
3: And I guess, you know, it's almost like uh, of course, you know, a podcast can't go past without me saying something about MMA or jiu-jitsu <laughs> or something like that. But, of course, it's like the world of jiu-jitsu or Brazilian jiu-jitsu at that, which we know uh, you know, took the MMA world by storm or the fighting world. But uh, the style that we know of today was the smallest, weakest brother developed it. Yeah. He had to develop a different style because he was smaller and
1: weaker, and he just got really good at certain techniques. Elio Gracie, the one that kind of pioneered it, mm-hmm. as we know it, He was so, and it's so, so fucked up because as it came on, he became known as the warrior. Like, Mm -hmm. so him and Carlos, was the warrior and the shaman. But when he was young, when he learned jujitsu, when he adapted that version of the style, Mm -hmm. he was so small and sickly. He didn't even go to school and shit. Yep.
2: Damn.
1: Yeah. He was just this small, sick, little weak
3: kid. He never got taught jujitsu. He was too small and weak, but his brothers that got taught jujitsu had a school and they were training people. And he all he did was sit and watch. That was it. Because he was too weak to train. But he started looking at all the techniques and learning. And then, you know, story has it, one day one of his brothers couldn't train somebody. And he was like, I'll train you. And the style and everything at which he did, the the guy that he was training really liked it. And now when his brother came back, like the next training session, he was like, You know what, i I'm, to I'm train with your brother. He he like, who? Him, like the little guy, yeah, you know, and then, you know, that whole new style came about, but it wasn't based on strength or overpowering
1: your opponent or anything like that because he couldn't do it. So this actually takes it from the MMA version of Legend Has It. That was actually the story I heard, too. So I don't know if the both of us, me and my homie on my podcast count as two resources, but yes, he heard it. I heard it. That's two sources, man. That's fact. fact. (laughs) (laughs) So originally Eddie Fletcher of the Siamese twins was one of the first guys that we covered on the podcast that had never been released was kind of like a trial episode, trying to figure out how to put the podcast together. And, before I was as good at finding the pictures, I would see all these pictures of him. And I always heard how small he was. And I always thought, he doesn't look that small. It looks like a regular dude. Mm-hmm. Until I found this picture of him and Abe Axler mm-hmm. with these two guys. And now, mind you, those guys aren't heavyweight boxers. Those are lawyers. <laughs> right. <laughs> and these two regular just Joe Schmo goofball lawyers tower over these dudes. Yeah. Oh,
2: okay. So they're all – all right. I thought they were in the courtroom on the picture in the right thought maybe they were sitting down and the lawyers were standing up because but... <laughs> i mean the one guy i mean he, he does look like the guy on the right what eddie fletcher yeah fletcher he does look about half the size of the other dude and i thought it was just because they were sitting down but now that they're standing up it's like yeah i could see man he was a
1: little dude the wilder looking one that's abe axler so the one with the skinny face yeah the one with the more slick back hair that's eddie fletcher now the siamese twins they were also and I, and I feel so bad for this dude. Almost anytime you read any story that involved the Siamese twins, there is usually also Simon Axler, who on this podcast I once referred to as his brother. It's actually his cousin. So ah. I correct myself. I mm-hmm. hey, As I do more research, I find more information. <laughs> but there, in my defense, there's not a ton of information about Simon fucking Axler out there. So how the <laughs> fuck was I supposed to know? But yeah, it turns out his, his cousin. But that's got to be disappointing. You and your cousin come from Brooklyn over so that he become like a famous celebrity gangster, but not with you. Yeah. <laughs> with his other homie, Eddie.
2: That's right. And they call him the Siamese twins. <laughs>
3: he wasn't vicious enough. And he, he probably was too tall. You know, he's probably like 5'8 or something, a
1: giant. <laughs> like, Can't look, hang with us. You you're know? throwing off our whole thing, bro.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so now they got they got plenty of muscle. You know, they've kind of taken over everything. They kind of capitalized on having the extra muscle and manpower. And after acquiring several boats with access to additional muscle, they began smuggling whiskey from Canada across the Detroit River. They would also patrol the area and hijack similar shipments coming from other distributors. This was the development of another Purple Gang faction that was known as the Little Jewish Navy. Mm. <laughs> I like that.
3: Yeah, the, the funny thing is, I don't know how heavily the Detroit River was uh, patrolled back then. But even now, it's don't get me wrong. The Coast Guard is out there, but it's not a big gap between Detroit and Canada and Windsor. It's not that heavily patrolled even to today. So I can see that being like a
1: great racket back then. Based on the research, it seems like the only people doing any patrolling were the little little Jewish Navy. (laughs) So you probably should stay the fuck out of the Detroit River. You know, like how you talked about how close it is. Mm -hmm. There was actually areas where Canada is so close to Michigan that in the winter, when it would freeze over, they would just drive shipments over in cars. Wow. They would load up cars. They do it like a, like a caravan, Mm -hmm. like a, like a train wagon that they'd load up a convoy. They'd find the thickest spot of ice, Mm -hmm. and they'd just drive a convoy of cars from Canada across the river, and they would do it full, you know, gunmen, Mm -hmm. you know, muscle to protect it and everything, and just bring over shipments at a time. And so you had the little Jewish Navy doing it on boats, which, you know, because you can't year-round it works. But yeah, during the winter, at some points, they could just literally drive it over the river.
3: I can see that in particular places, like if you're going from like Belle Isle, uh, because it's, you know, it's in the middle of the river. Yeah. Uh, or even I believe Gross Ill is like, mm-hmm. you know, right there too. So I could, I could see that, you know, oh, especially some of those real co-winners we get here. I can
1: definitely see that. We we do a lot of talking about gang names and terrible gang names and stuff like that. You know, how there's some movies like Roadhouse, right? Like Roadhouse is a terrible movie, but it's also <laughs> the best movie in the world because it embraces, it knows that it's not Citizen Kane. Bugs always points out to me every time I watch it. The best part about how bad this movie is, is you see Patrick Swayze he's always doing Tai Chi, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Tai Chi is supposed to be like a real loose, fluid, like r- martial art. But he's always doing it so flexed and tight and sweaty <laughs> that he always says, I feel like he's doing that completely wrong. <laughs> and it's, but they just embrace it like he's doing muscle Tai Chi. Yeah. Like that's like the DDP yoga version yes. of fucking Tai Chi or some shit
2: he can't choose between two parts of himself (laughs) is it the tai chi or is it the flexing
1: to me little jewish navy is the roadhouse of gang names it's so bad that it's kind of the best nickname i've ever heard ever
3: well two things one i absolutely love roadhouse it is one of my all time favorite movies and as everybody knows i don't even watch a lot of movies i love roadhouse and two the little Jewish Navy is great.
1: <laughs>
2: yeah.
3: It sounds like a
1: like a little tyke's toy or something. <laughs> It shows me that for a bunch of, uh, you know, grizzled, hardened gangsters and criminals that they clearly had a sense of humor.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you're the Detroit police back in that day, I bet you don't got as many boats as the little Jewish Navy did.
1: Right. It was
3: probably named by like one of their grandmother or something. It was like, no, I'm, I'm leaving out. Grandma's like, Oh, where are you going? To your little fringe, little Jewish Navy. Like, oh, that's it.
2: Got it. <laughs> I was thinking more like they should they show up at the
1: meeting and he's like, you never guess what she said. I was thinking maybe he, he was going to get in trouble, like had to lie to leave. Like, no, I'm not. I'm not hanging out with gangs anymore. I joined the military. I'm in the Navy. No, the little Jewish <laughs> the Navy, Jewish, you, know, you know, not the big Navy, the little Jewish Navy down the street. Like, dumbass, she's going to find out. She don't read the newspapers. It's, it's all right. It's cool. The high quality of Canadian whiskey was in high demand. Especially compared to most of the homemade alcohol. Now, down in Chicago, some of the Northside guys, because they were Irish, had some connections where they could get, you know, had some Irish connections to get whiskey. And Capone was a beer guy. A lot of people don't know that because they know it's Prohibition. Capone was a beer drinker. He ran beer stills. Alcohol, actual liquor liquor, was really tough to come across. So Detroit having this pipeline to, because we know now to this day where we could go get whiskey anywhere we want, Canadian whiskey is high level whiskey. Mm -hmm. So this was a high ticket item. They became like a huge uh, whiskey distributor. Eventually, they even distributed for a while to Al Capone, who found it easier to work with the Violent Purple Gang than to try and go to war with them. You know, and Al Capone was, you know, he was a gangster's gangster, you know. But he also was a businessman, Mm -hmm. and he seen what the fuck they had going on in Detroit. And he's like, you know what? We'll just pay for a shipment. It's cool. We got (laughs) your back.
3: I mean, this is the thing, too. You know, they ran, you know, Chicago so tight. I mean, he puts his markup on it, and it's a whole new business, and I don't have to find or pay
1: my own way. So yeah, why not? I'll get a couple shipments. Okay, what's cheaper to to pay you know pay decent money for some top shelf Canadian liquor, and then you know bring on these Jewish guys for muscle when you're in town, right? Or go to war with them. You know what? (laughs) Send us a shipment. We'll call you when we're in town. We appreciate your work, fellas. Don't send
2: the little Jewish Navy all the way around the Great Lakes, please.
1: <laughs> that's a long
3: haul around. <laughs> the funny thing is, see, that's another thing where certain things just don't change. I remember growing up, and if you were too young to drink in the good old area of Detroit, you go right across the bridge or the tunnel <laughs> to to Canada, yep. where you can drink at like 18. <laughs> yep. You get drunk. And then you
1: come back over the border, you know. Hey, why not? By now they had cornered the market. If you wanted to make your liquor in house, you had to buy your sugar from the Oakland Sugar House gang. If you wanted to buy a liquor, you had to buy it from them. And if you wanted to get whiskey, they had the top end whiskey. And then they had the snatch racket too. By the mid nineteen twenties, they had basically moved into every other traditional racket, including prostitution, gambling. And Joseph Bernstein eventually organized the city's 700 handbooks under the Purple Gang-controlled wire service. Are you familiar with the wire service? I am not. So the wire service is, you know, we're talking pre-internet, pre-phones like we discussed earlier. The wire service was, uh, you know, the telegram. You uh, sent someone yeah. a wire. So if you're in the middle of Detroit, but you want to bet the horses, you want mm-hmm. to bet the dogs, you want to bet sports, whatever you want to do... Mm-hmm. So if you're running a handbook, which is basically mm-hmm. you're a bookie, right? You need the results, ultimately, so you would pay for a wire service. Mm-hmm. That wire service would bring you all those results in. So eventually, the Purple Gang took control of the wire service. So even if you weren't a Purple Gang operator, if you wanted to run a gambling den, same thing like with the sugar. Mm-hmm. You could do your own thing. You just got to buy our sugar. You can start your own book, but you need to get our wire service. So
3: first, they cornered the market in the particular area they were in. Mm-hmm. Now this is called diversifying your portfolio. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> and, like the the eventual mob mentality to try to get into something that's like quasi legal, you know what I mean? Like oh yeah, hey, you could do the gambling part, but you know we're gonna run the wire, you know. And the wire service was fine, right? Like mm-hmm.
1: like well, here's the thing that's tricky because the wire service was technically fine, but it was always run by gangsters. The product itself is not crime, yeah, but the you use our wire service or we crack your head open and burn your business down <laughs> is where the, the, that's where the Bernstein's come in. So and the stocks came through the wire too, right? Correct. So what we're going to do, we're going to take us a, we're going to take a quick smoke break, refill our drinks, and we'll be back in a minute. listening just real quick want to ask you to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app go to apple itunes give us a five-star rating and leave us a review and we'll read it on the show if you have any questions comments or a guy that you would recommend we cover you can email us at say hello to the bad guy podcast at gmail.com we also want to thank Sixfo sueno for letting us use his music in the intro you can subscribe to him on youtube and also a friend of the show cancer He's got an art, photography, and graphic design page at Eyes Bleed Defiance on Instagram. You can see a lot of his work, including our cover art, which he designed. And he also performed the mid-show song, Blood, from his album, Grenades, Pistols, and Rape Whistles. Now back to the show. And we're back. Tank, you switched up your beer. What are you drinking?
2: Holmes Brewery in Ann Arbor
1: Intersect IPA.
2: Uh, it's a hazy IPA. Um, I want to say it's around six and a half, seven and uh it's good
1: um that's pretty low for you
2: <laughs> i'm already feeling it to be honest but yeah uh it's a good one not it's not bitter so it it couldn't be called hoppy and uh it's pretty smooth it goes down good
1: you drink them a lot on here we hear about it a lot like would you say is like holmes your favorite brewery
2: old nation and holmes are right there right now old nation's mm. Williamston, michigan and holmes is ann arbor michigan and you know we like to to do the locals and then Third would have been uh, Atwater. <laughs>
1: well, that's why we we could uh, send it out with a bang with his purple game pills. Rest in peace, Kraft Atwater.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right, so so me and DC, we got you know like the Michael Colleone, every time I'm out, they keep pulling me back in. <laughs> yes. You you had offered me another dark beer was on the table, but I stuck to my commitment to uh, not drink dark beers again until we're out of that season. So I got this Holmes Brewery uh, tank brought us. It's the, uh, does that say Metaform? Yep. So it's Metaform Sour Raspberry IPA. You ever had it, DC? I have never had, and I want to say
3: thank you to Tank. Um, it's actually really good. It is a sour, but a lot of times the sours, like you feel it like it's a bite on the tongue. But this one, it, it almost tastes like a juice. And then all of a sudden you get like a bite <laughs> in the back of the jaw. It's It's really weird, but i like it it's a uh it's a good flavor not sure how hard it's gonna hit but uh i like it a lot so far see i knew what you
1: meant but a- after you said it i had to try it again just to make sure like, <laughs> yeah I literally get that like in the back of your jaw <laughs> yeah and
2: it's it's mm. uh six percent i think so nice yeah it's strong one too
1: and it's early today
2: yep whatever
1: quarantine's over it's nice out i gotta be honest guys. I got beer 30 really pumped up. yeah i was, I was like, it's
2: been too long i'm bringing the big guns
1: i'm down fuck we, it we took a trip
2: and got some brews and
1: don't don't threaten me with a good time i'm in, right fuck it. in 1925 the purple gang decides they're going to continue diversifying their portfolio and they decide to move into labor racketeering now a. Bernstein's partners with a guy named Francis Martel, who's the president of the, the Detroit branch of the American Federation of Labor. And they decided they want to organize the area cleaners and dyers companies into unions. That was the big, you know, big thing at the time, labor racketeering, you know, taking right. advantage of the unions. So they start helping them organize and they would use them as muscle to make sure they keep the union members in line. But they would also use them as muscle to terrorize independence into joining okay so which basically means everyone yes either we could beat you up to make sure you do what the union tells you to or beat you up to make you join the union
2: they're like wait we started this movement because they're killing us with chemicals (laughs) and now you're threatening our lives and like we're we're confused
1: aka coring the market again (laughs) damn
2: straight
1: (laughs) so over the next few years they would regularly hijack or blow up truckloads of laundry uh, drivers were beaten, they burned down warehouses, uh, Novelty and Empire Cleaners were both bombed, and then there was two vocal opponents, Sam Sigmund and Samuel Polakoff, were murdered. So they like legitimately went to work on mm-hmm. the Cleaners and Dyers unions. Damn. This is also where the other most likely reason that they became called the Purple Gang is. Some people said like they would throw purple dye in with the uh, laundry to ruin it. I like all those different possibilities because,
3: in particular, I didn't think of any of them. I always thought it was just based around uh,
1: uh, purple being considered a royal color. And that could be it, too. I mean, we really don't know. They're all, all of them are theories in general. Maybe... Mm-hmm. It was some old Russian version of Dirty Ox where they said he was like, you know, tainted meat. That's my favorite though. i am go with that one for life. <laughs> tainted meat. Like, as as it could be as simple as like, oh, well, one of the guys boxed in purple shorts, so they called him the Purple Gang. Like, who knows? Right no, on. it was the meat. It's the meat. Tainted meat. The purple gang brought in hundreds of thousands of dollars, and this time frame became known as the Cleaners and Dyers War. In 1927, nine gang members, including Abe and Rabin Bernstein, Eddie Fletcher, Abe and Simon Axler, were all arrested and charged with extortion, and all were acquitted. Around the same time, there was a Chicago-based jewel thief named Frank Wright. He started operating in Detroit with his two partners, Joseph Bloom and George Cohen. One of their big—they were into the snatch racket, too. They were always kind of on the edge with the Purple Gang, but they kind of let them slide— And that all changed once the trio ended up killing a purple gang operator. Mm. In order to get to Frank, they arranged the kidnapping of his friend, uh, Meyer Bloomfield. So, you know, stick to what you're good at. Like, I don't know. Let's kidnap his friend. Right. (laughs) I get an idea. You guys will never think of this one. (laughs) How about we kidnap his buddy? (laughs) Yeah. So they kidnap his buddy and I told him, you could come pick him up, bring all your friends. And show up at the Milla uh, Flores Apartments, uh, apartment number 308. Oh, okay. Always a bad sign. Yep. Like, do I got to bring all my friends? Yeah, all of them. <laughs> what could go wrong? Right. <laughs> so, March 28th, 1927, 4.30 in the morning, Frank Wright, George Cohen, and Joseph Bloom knocked on the door to apartment 308, and the fire door at the end of the hall opened. The Siamese twins, Eddie Fletcher and Abe Axler, as well as hired hitman, formerly of the Egan's Rat Gang out of St. Louis. Uh, Fred Killer Burke emptied their weapons into the trio. And I remember this from the Killer Burke episode. Yep. So (laughs) Fred Killer Burke has been covered on the episode before, so you you get more detail on that. But I think that also so a couple things that also speaks to earlier we were talking about the factions, right? Mm -hmm. So you got you know the Purple Gang, you got the Sugar House Gang, you got the Siamese Twins, you got the Little Jewish Navy. He kind of worked... He was like a his own faction off the Egan's Rat Gang. Mm-hmm. So when you look into the Purple Gang, these are all names that'll pop up. And that's why I said it's like a loose confederation operating under this umbrella. But I would definitely recommend you go check out the Killer Burke episode. He's got a whole other side story of his own. Yep. So the Siamese twins had 1911s, which seemed to be their weapon of choice. Killer Burke unloaded a, a clip with his Thompson into him, which definitely seemed to be his weapon of choice. <laughs> Bloom and Cohen were found dead on arrival with too many bullets to count or too many bullet wounds to count. Frank Wright was alive despite being hit 14 times. Now he ended up dying 20 hours later, but when he was questioned, the only information he gave the police was he said that the machine gun worked. That's all I can remember. <laughs>
3: I think we talked about this at that time too on the Killerberg episode, but 911 is a great weapon.
1: I just wanted to throw that out there. <laughs> so once you when you win two world wars, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? I think it's a perfect example. I' seen a meme about the nineteen eleven that said it's proof that big, old and slow still can get the job done. Yes, it's true. you know in nineteen eleven honestly, people don't consider this all the time because it's a big gun, but it's a carryable gun because it's it's thin, yeah, you know, so especially if you go with a shoulder strap or something, it's a great gun. It's thin and it's it's
3: very accurate. A lot of other guns, like especially you know, your Glock and your Glock derivatives, you know, cause everybody's made their version of the Glock. Right. Like, I don't know how to explain this. Like they're top heavy. Mm-hmm. Right. So you, you get a little bit more kick that messes with the accuracy. Or so jump. you have to be, yeah, you have to be better. The mm-hmm. 1911, I almost feel like you could train like, anybody to shoot even though it's a larger gun look
1: i've I've seen a picture of a 1911 being shot by a wounded man being carried off the battlefield (laughs) if it gets it done in that situation what more could you ask for i mean that's the that's the firearm you need to choose yeah so i love the 1911s that seemed to be the the siamese twins leaned on the 1911s killer burke leaned on the thompson this was known as the first time that the Thompson machine gun was used in Detroit uh, criminal history. So that had to be a scary time,
3: you think of it. No, they have this gun, right? And 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 like it just shoots a million bullets in one second. Because you know you have to exaggerate whatever the story is. Yeah. And like and and when they leave the scene, there's just bullets everywhere. Everybody's like, oh my god. <laughs> so it has to be scary. Especially, this was probably back in the time where most people still only had maybe shotgun or a revolver.
1: Or a rifle. And even the rifles weren't semi-automatic. They were mostly, you you know, like a lever action or something like that. Exactly. Do you know much about why the Thompson ended up in the hands of so many gangsters? I do not. The reason the Thompson submachine gun has that handle up at the front of it, it was designed during World War I for trench sweeping. Mm Mm-hmm. You hold that front handle, and that's why, you know, it's a small bullet. You're not trying to shoot down a battlefield. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? High rate of fire. It's not got to be accurate. You're supposed to sweep trenches with it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: By the time they finally got it approved, built, and ready to ship, World War One ended, and they had no use for it. I remember that. They tried to roll it out to the police force, and they were like, well, why would we... <laughs> This is a giant, heavy hey, gun. What are and we doing yeah. this? Yeah. The fuck What we do with this gun? Like, we have zero use for this. No, get your stupid gun out of here. So now they got this warehouse full of these Thompsons that the military don't need and the cops don't want. Well, guess who wants them? Fucking Fred Killer Burke and, you know, the five families. They want them. And now they need to get rid of them. So these guys, they go on the market and the fucking, the gangsters buy them up. And then, now once they're out on the street, and because what it is designed for Trent sweeping works, but it's also a very good weapon. It would be like urban guerrilla warfare, mm-hmm. which basically, you know, the criminal life mm-hmm. is you're in an urban yeah. setting. So it's the perfect gun. Mm-hmm. Now, all of a sudden the police are outgunned mm-hmm. and they're like, Hey, you <laughs> got it. Get some of those.
0: <laughs> My bad, man. We were
1: kind of tripping. <laughs> yeah. Got any of those Tommy guns laying around still? Cause we could use a couple. But yeah, that's how the that's how the Thompson like became like the weapon of choice for the gangsters, was it was the highest powered thing that they were looking to move because they made a whole bunch of them and nobody needed them. It's funny too
3: because what I said about the nineteen eleven and how basically anybody can shoot it because it's so accurate. The Tommy gun is the exact same thing for the exact opposite reason. Anybody can shoot it because the goal is not to aim, right? It's just to spray. <laughs> You don't have to be accurate. Just keep waving your... Yeah, just keep shooting. It's it's enough. (laughs) They they,
1: they give you a whole extra handle so you don't have to aim. In an apartment hallway. (laughs) Fucking... God damn. I'm not a marksman, (laughs) but I feel like I could hit a couple guys with a Thompson in a hallway. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But that's good planning, right? Get them in this hallway. Damn straight. Abe Axler and Fred Burke, as well as a couple other Purple Gang members, got questioned, arrested, and released. That event is now known as the Miliflores Massacre. No one's ever been convicted of it. Between the blatant violence of the Cleaners and Dyers War and the brutality of the Miliflores Massacre, the Purple Gangs now secured their vicious reputation. I actually put viscous. (laughs) (laughs) Their viscous (laughs) reputation.
2: They made oils and other fluids.
1: (laughs) So this is a bunch of pictures of Killer Burke. Some of these are new pictures. I wish I would have had when we'd covered Killer I was gonna say one, at least one. Yeah, a couple of them. I think I got five pictures of them. In four of the five pictures, he has a cigar in his mouth. I love the uh, one with the cigar, the hat, and the three-piece suit.
3: Uh, you know, I don't wear suits a lot. I heard three-piece suits are making a comeback, but I don't know why they went out of style. It is the—I love three-piece suits. It is the most
1: classic elegant look to me especially if you're a gangster uh i am also a fan i like the three-piece suit i think it's a good look problem is like in the business world you can't do it because it's like well what are you what are you trying are you going to a wedding
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> what is going on dude i really wanted the sale <laughs> i just really like this suit. I, I, I lo- you're my most important client <laughs> so i wore this for you so my favorite one is this one of fred killer burke sitting down with a cigar in his mouth handcuffed to another dude like, i i was wondering what that was it's like a it's like an old school kit leash you ever
2: see the kids oh, on the yeah. leash Yeah, dude. the leash is around the parents yeah. arm and here it's an old school kit luckily luckily for me my like my ma had one of those but it was velcro And I've always been big, so I was like, I just (laughs) just busted right out of that bitch. (laughs) But i seen the ones now that are like five-point harnesses, so there's no way for them to go. But yeah, anyways, I know exactly what you're talking
1: about. Yeah, so that's not arrested. That's so that killer Burke don't wander off. (laughs) That's the mob version of the kid leash. (laughs) February 14th, 1929, Al Capone sets up the St. Valentine's Massacre, where seven members of the rival Northside gang were lined up along a wall and murdered. It is said that the gang was there to pick up a hijacked whiskey shipment arranged between Muggs Moran and Abe Bernstein. Most people think that the reason that this whole, you know, both the Gusenberg brothers, why some of the, you know, elite of the gang were all hollowed up at this place is that Abe Bernstein, on the assistance of Al Capone to get them all in this place, set up this fake shipment of liquor that they're waiting to have arrived. Makes sense. The landlords of the rooming house across the street identified Eddie Fletcher and both the Keywell brothers as having rented out several rooms 10 days before the massacre. All were questioned, but when the witnesses later wavered their testimony, no charges were ever brought up. The good old days. (laughs) Hey, change your testimony. (laughs) I saw
3: nothing. Acquit (laughs) it!
1: The St. Valentine's Day massacre, uh, nobody knows for sure. We've covered, like I said, between Killer Burke We've covered a lot of different ends around it. Maybe eventually we can do a whole podcast on the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. The Purple Gang has been connected to it. It seems like, in my unexpert opinion, that they weren't involved with the actual shooting. It seems like they kind of operated as lookouts and, you know, kind of did surveillance. Uh, Al Capone's outfit at the time was real into; they were doing precise operations. And I think that speaks to how important the St. Valentine's Day Massacre was to Capone, that he was willing to bring in the best of the best, not even for the hit, just even for the surveillance end.
2: Yep. And I mean, with, a, with something that the operation, you know, you want it to go off right. You you don't want to spare any expense or any chance. You know, don't leave nothing to chance. Get it right.
1: They're all questioned. No charges were ever brought up. And over the next couple of years, the Purple Gang became increasingly bolder with their violence. I read a quote that said the purple Gang began terrorizing Detroiters with the street executions of their enemies. Here's some pictures I got. They were into killing people out in the public eye, out on the street. They they wanted it to be known. We're not the ones to fuck with. How crazy does it have to
3: be? So looking at the pictures we have, there's a, and there's a guy dead in the middle of the street. Looks like they got him in the head or whatever. And he's just laid out in the middle of the street. And there's a car coming down the street. And now if you're in that car that's coming down the street, like how scary does this scene have to be? It's like coming down the street, like, oh, wait a minute. I thought that was a bag in the street. I was gonna run it over, but that's a guy that's
1: dead.
2: Old ass yeah. headlights. What the hell is that?
1: <laughs> right. Holy shit. So I'm guessing that thing ain't got anti-lock brakes. <laughs> I mean, What's that? <laughs> I don't know for sure, but like bicycle tires on those what things, is that? basically. Right, it'll hit that body and fucking break that axle (laughs) off. (laughs) A police officer named Vivian Welsh was murdered on the street, and in 1930, a popular radio personality named Jerry Buckley was murdered in the lobby of a downtown hotel.
2: Wow. Killing personalities and
3: in a downtown hotel at that. That's uh, ballsy.
1: They really started to get out of control. Around this time, one of the biggest problems with the Purple Gang seems to be that they're predominantly pretty young guys. It's a lot of ego, you know, trying to prove themselves and nobody wanted to take shit. And they got to a point where they had ran shit so much, like literally running every aspect that they kind of started chewing their own legs off imploding from the inside. They start fighting amongst themselves. Two Purple Gang members decided to fuck with this dude. Mm -hmm. So it's got three Purple Gang members. Two of them would decide to fuck with the other guy, locked him in a closet. The guy from inside the closet said, let me out or I'm going to come out shooting. They didn't. Then he started shooting through the door, killed one. Then the guy in the closet and the other guy that didn't get killed had to go bury the guy that got shot because they got to get rid of this body now.
3: Yeah, I can see that. I mean, and this is an example of why women live longer than men. (laughs) (laughs) right? Whenever you have a bunch of young guys and you give them a lot of power, a lot of money or anything like that their um, macho-ness slash testosterone hasn't matured yet to where everything isn't a pissing contest, you have stuff like I mean, and, and some people never mature. Most guys mature, but some never mature. So it's a pissing contest at 90 years old, you know? But uh, it, it's unfortunate because although if they're bad guys and these are crimes, I mean, they had a good thing going on. If yeah. you can keep everything together at the top, you can, you know, you can take this thing for a long time.
1: You know, they always say absolute power corrupts absolutely. Yes. And we're not talking about crafty old wise men. Mm-hmm. You know, we're talking about young, violent street kids mm-hmm. that are that have everything. Uh, Nino Brown. Mm-hmm. Right? right. It's kind of Nino Brownish. Once you right. once you get everything, you want everything, and you don't want to That's take true. shit from anybody, and you want. Even my girl, man. (laughs) We compared New York to
2: Detroit earlier. In New York you've got a hierarchy, you've got a solid system there. When somebody in the middle or the bottom fucks up, they gotta deal with somebody at the top killing a dude over a a squabble in the street and, and leaving it out for the newspaper to find it. The boss is not going to like that if it wasn't meant to be. So earlier we were talking about Purple Gang was kind of a state of mind. It was it was factions. It was separate ones, uh, structure per se, and now you're seeing the byproduct of that. You got young dudes making calls that probably wouldn't happen in, in
1: other systems, you know what I mean? And it's interesting, you know, how the wave went. Well, right. Like, so you're not supposed to put your hands on a made man, let alone just go ahead and kill one. Cause you were in a closet and you know what I mean? And he pays like, like you said, you have someone to go answer to for that. Like, mm-hmm.
3: yeah, take makes a great point. And
1: even if you look at the, you know, New York
3: fashion of the mafia and everything like that, a lot of the implosion came as the younger guys came in, you know, because a lot of the older guys was more mild with certain things. They weren't as flashy, everything like that. And the young guys was like, no, we run this bitch. We the mob. <laughs> you know, it's well,
1: like, yeah. We, we see what happened after that. Yeah. The picture, our original logo. Like it, I got it behind me in the studio. Yeah. <laughs> like it's, it's the famous it says per- it. Yeah. It's the famous p- famous purple gang picture where they're all holding their, uh, their hats over their mm-hmm. faces and trying to hide their faces. And people always use that as like a representation of like, Oh, see, this is real gangster. Duh, duh. The problem is that picture is the exception rather than the rule. Now mm-hmm. that's a great picture. I love it. It's my favorite mm-hmm. picture, but that's actually not the purple gang. You know, you're thinking of a Tony Ocardo or, Oh that that's how you're supposed to do it. But in reality, yeah, they did that in that one picture, and then they went and just uh, fucking were throwing bodies all over the street and <laughs> shooting shit up and blowing up fucking a cleaner's business, like just regular fucking shit. In addition to bringing too much attention because they're sh- you know, leaving bodies all over the place. Now, Joseph Bernstein, who is the one that was running the wire service... He kind of developed into one of the biggest money makers out of the bunch. He marries this, uh, so she was this vaudeville. She came from the uh, same vaudeville review that Lucille Ball came from. Mm-hmm. So she was a local famous dancer. So he marries this, this beautiful lady, and he goes and buys this fancy house out in the suburbs. In the 1920s, it cost $100,000, and then he dumped $100,000 into furniture.
3: That is a beautiful house. It is, man. Um, if, uh, and I don't know the architecture all around the US but in the metro Detroit area that would be considered damn near a mansion like that is a nice house all brick which we absolutely love here because you need something to protect from those terrible ass winters <laughs> right you yeah. can't have that wood it'll get eaten up by salt <laughs> <laughs> but it's a nice big I don't know what that's considered with those many floors is that or a like Tudor yeah Tudor it might I think be. So. But uh, that is a beautiful home. Like I would love to own something like that today. That is a beautiful
2: home. Twin stack uh, fireplaces, it looks like. That's yep. happening.
1: So he gets approached like, hey, so you got this famous old lady and you got this beautiful mansion. So what do you do for a living? And he had reported as he was the owner of a three-seat barbershop in downtown. Beer salesman. <laughs> we upgraded to five seats. Hello. <laughs>
2: <laughs> look man um there is such thing as thousand dollar haircuts out there right now i mean hey who knows maybe back then you know somebody's making a hundred dollars for a haircut i mean if if you're making a hundred dollars for a haircut and you're cutting three haircuts a day there you go before long you're gonna have <laughs> your hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollar twin stack fucking fireplace
1: <laughs> mansion no no doubt about it <laughs> damn straight clearly you've never seen a fucking never seen a joey bernstein fade
3: we have a particular set of clientele <laughs> We
1: won't give up our clients, but we do a good job. I make a good living off of that. They just got heat on all over the place. Between the infighting between factions, body counts rises as the government begins to crack down on Prohibition-era gang activity. In 1931, the Little Jewish Navy decides to encroach on other factions' territory and becomes increasingly insubordinate to the Bernstein brothers. They basically just decided, we'll just do our own thing, too.
2: I, I'm sorry. I'm just geeked up that the little Jewish Navy is still a thing. <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> Heard from it in a minute. You know what I mean? It, it came back from the threat of Capone. It, it made it halfway around the Great Lakes, and now it's back. No. Nah. I'm sorry, Austin. You know, while you were on land doing that, we were still out on the water Fucking doing water dude, shit. The... <laughs> Detroit River is nothing compared to Superior and fucking Michigan, all right? I'm pretty sure they probably stretched out there, too.
1: So the Little Jewish Navy, the Bernstein Brothers, they schedule a sit-down to go through some peace talks and kind of figure out how they're going to make this work. Everything was set up for the Collingswood Manor Apartments on September sixteenth, 1931. Bring all your boys. <laughs> that doesn't sound good. <laughs> We're running it back. Room three oh eight. Bring your boys. You would think that the little Jewish Navy would be like, wait a minute. Did you, did you say bring all my boys?
2: Yeah. And I mean I know social media wasn't a thing back then, but you figured by now the first use of the Tommy would have gotten around to the people who use the Tommies. <laughs> Listen, if I'm the little Jewish Navy, I say
3: No, no, no. Let's meet a very safe place on the Detroit River. (laughs)
2: Right. Bring all of
1: your boys. Home court, motherfucker. (laughs) Bring your paddle your ass out here. Paddle your ass out here to grow zeal. (laughs) The little Jewish Navy leadership was Herman Paul, Isidore Sutker, and Joseph Leibowitz. They show up for the meeting, and after a brief discussion, they're all gunned down. I'm so shocked that that happened. That became what is now known as the Collingswoods Massacre. So this is my
3: question: How many people does it have to be before it's considered a massacre? When is it just a shooting? <laughs> right? What, what, does three people equal a massacre?
1: We got the Saint Valentine's Day is clearly a massacre. That's yes. seven, so yes. that's a given. Yes. Right. One's clearly not. Two's clearly yes. not. Yes. Three, I guess, was what we'd be discussing would be the floor. There's also one that's called the the Fox Trout Massacre. But that one was also three. Okay. So I feel like it's been firmly established in three gang lore that three or more. Okay, got it. Irvin Milberg, Harry Keywell, and Raymond Bernstein, three of the highest-ranking purple gangs, were convicted of first-degree murder in the Collinswood Massacre and sentenced to life in prison.
2: Finally, man. That's the fir- first time in the whole episode. I mean, don't get me wrong. The pictures earlier were obviously pictures from them getting arrested or something, whether they were acquitted or let go of the crimes uh first part of the episode where i heard about anybody going to the clink i mean i know there's a lot of purple gang uh content to cover but
1: i think that's kind of universal around this era so what we've seen a lot is early on the police would do a lot of roundups so there's a lot of mugshots of all the purple gang guys but money talks and these guys had a lot of money so they would bring in these high powered lawyers and they would buy off judges so the political corruption during prohibition was fucking huge you know what I mean? Yep. That had a big effect on it. You got to think of some laws
3: that were on the books over the years like in some instances where people couldn't get convicted if they you couldn't find the weapon and you yeah. know it's like just the craziest right. stuff or really you know just intimidating a witness where that's your only case based on what the law is. Yeah. All of a sudden this witness changes their mind. Well, I guess you don't have a case. Exactly. You know and how if, if I mean if you're going up against the Purple Gang and going back to that, <laughs> yeah. you have two choices. Okay, listen, you have two choices. I know oh, your family doesn't have yeah. a lot of money. You know, $1,000 is a lot of money. We give you $1,000. You didn't see anything. Or you saw something and we kill you. Which one would you like? <laughs> uh, you know, I was really thinking I needed exactly $1,000.
1: <laughs> see what? <laughs> I did see shit. I didn't see nothing. Matter of fact, I'm legally blind. <laughs> yeah, cataracts. <laughs> <laughs> But then once we're getting towards the end of prohibition, well, and the other big thing was the Great Depression. So once you get mm-hmm. in the 1930s, yeah. people start losing jobs. Yeah. They're less impressed by the gangster shit. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's not gonna, it doesn't fly like it used to. They're cracking down on them. And once you started having your massacres and stuff like that, that's also you notice the Miller Flores massacre was 27, the St Valentine's Day massacre was 29. All this shit starts ending in the early 30s because once you, once it got to that level. Early on, when they were just selling booze and killing each other, nobody gave a fuck, mm-hmm. you know. But now, when it's like brutal and you just got bodies on the street, you have to do something, you know. You're a society and shit. This exact same murder in 1926, they'd have got away with it. Just now, that shit's not buying the pull that it used to. Right now. So when they all went to jail, this was the beginning of the end for the Purple Gang. Most of their leadership had been murdered or was doing lengthy uh, prison time. In 1933, the Siamese twins made a push to take over leadership of the gang. And on November 26th, after being last seen at a local beer garden, Abe Axler and Eddie Fletcher were found at 2 a.m., murdered in the backseat of Axler's new Chrysler on Telegraph and Corton Road in Bloomfield Hills, Michigan. Okay. Which is right over by where they think Hoffa was killed at. No shit. It's not a whole lot, literally, right off of Telegraph in that area. I
3: can
2: imagine There was probably almost nothing out there. Yeah, I was just gonna say the same thing, man. 1933 <laughs> Bloomfield <laughs> was probably like 1933 anywhere other than Detroit, right? Yeah,
3: if it wasn't like a that hustle was... and bustle city, exactly. Yeah, to that was your point. yeehaw
2: count.
1: See, this is like the black bottom of thing. Like you guys know the area because, so when you read the old source material on it, it was out in the middle of nowhere at you know what i mean so yeah. they kind of went and dumped it in the middle of nowhere telegraph road because the telegraph that connects the <laughs> canada to fucking mexico <laughs> r-
2: runs through michigan and that's where telegraph road came from or whatever and that's west bloomfield was because there was blooms in the field it wasn't like it is now where it's 500 grand for a, a house uh, one and a half story house mm-hmm. everything was like off of telegraph.
1: Yeah.
3: It wasn't really on. So I could imagine, you know, in the 30s it was like, yeah, there's there's nothing fucking there. This is out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah.
2: That was when you could get away with dumping a body in West (laughs) (laughs) Bloomfield. Now Now, yeah now. Excuse me, sir, are you wearing your mask? (laughs) What are you doing over there?
3: Now (laughs) it's the type of place they run your place as they see. You
2: know, I notice you're not from
3: around here. Are you (laughs) passing
1: through Yes, sir. I'm going right through, sir. <laughs> they were found at 2 a.m. In the backseat of New Chrysler, blah, blah, Their bodies were found. They were holding hands. It would, They probably weren't holding hands. It looked like their hands were put together, which <laughs> I don't know. Some people. I don't know why that's so funny to me. Here's the weird thing, and I don't know if this would go. should have went in the legend hands part or whatever, but some people say that they put their hands together mockingly to make fun of them and some people say they did it as like i don't know like a last ditch of respect or whatever because they were like together Mm -hmm. forever one like there's nothing in the middle it's completely one or the other like they did it to make fun of them or they did it because they're boys either way i mean it was a it was a solid 15 to
2: 20 years of just running shit so i mean i ain't saying shit to abe and my (laughs) man if they want (laughs) to hold hands right in front of me right now
3: any last wishes Yeah, can we just hold hands one last
1: time? Go ahead, go ahead. By 1935, the Purple Gang had lost control of their wire service to the local Detroit Mafia. Former Purple Gunman Harry Millman, who notoriously hated Italian gangsters, he ran a small crew of Jewish gangsters robbing mafia-led handbooks until he was murdered in 1937. What he didn't realize is he was in a lost era, you know what I mean, that was cool in the 20s when they were running shit, but by now killer burke's in jail the twins are dead everybody's locked up joseph bernstein the one with the fat house and the little lady he just retired and left that doesn't surprise me so he
3: was the smart guy i remember um there was a line one of the guys from the locks it was a rap song had to be late 90s early 2000s lyric he said uh gangsters don't get don't die they get fat and move to Miami. So <laughs> yeah. he actually took that to heart. See, huh? he was like, yeah, listen, I'm going to go ahead and retire. I'm going to get fat with this fat money, and we're going to move somewhere mm-hmm. nice where we don't have to deal with this gangster shit.
1: <laughs> it was fun while it lasted. Well, he's now not a young teenage angry boy. Now he's exactly. gonna gr- like, you know what? Uh ah. Well, his brother Ray's doing life in prison for a murder. Mm-hmm.
2: Like, yeah, I'm, I'm done with all that. Yeah. Cause I mean that age back then
1: you were, you were ready to start relaxing. Right. Well, and if you started off fucking flipping carts in Eastern market and now you got this fat house and you're a famous wife, you're like, you know what?
2: I'm out. Exactly.
1: I'm a house Winner. husband. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a pre-war. I'm a pre-war
2: house husband. All right. I'm out of here.
1: Abe Bernstein would run a small handbook out of a room in the Weston Cadillac Book Hotel until his death on March 7th, 1968.
2: Wow. Oh, wait, wait. All right. I mean, Weston Book for 30 something years. All right. Yeah. So now I'm going to go down
3: there. I'm going to, uh, yeah. So I'd like to get a room, please. The Bernstein Room. <laughs>
1: huh? You know what? <laughs> G- grab your crew, gather around. I'm going to tell you guys a story. <laughs> All right, so that's the story of the Purple Gang.
0: So say goodnight to the bad guy. Come on. The last time you're going to see a bad guy like this again, let me tell you.
1: I guess everything we got to do a little bit different because we usually do one character, right? If we were going to cover one person to represent the Purple Gang, or, you know, one person kind of represent the story, who do you think would be the best guy to cover from the story of the Purple Gang?
3: I'll go first if you don't mind. Yeah, thanks. for sure. Do um I don't think you can do one person. I think especially like how you explained all the different factions and everything like that. And then if I had to pick anybody slash people, I would say the Siamese twins, you know, just covering them themselves. Like their story would be interesting. Also, who whoever the cousin was wasn't a part of Siamese twins uh-huh. that should have been Simon like, Axler yeah like how did he get on the outskirts of that you know so I think that story would be uh pretty interesting
1: what do you think tang
2: Anything? yeah the twins man how come I'm forgetting the name the who ended up in the western book until oh, the 60s Abe yes particularly.
1: I mean, I guess the Keywell brothers were there the whole time. The problem is, it just doesn't. They seem kind of uninteresting, mm-hmm. which, for the record, probably means they were great gangsters. Yeah, <laughs> right. right. The ones that the, no information the, on I, us. I have to we buy did a great that job. theory. <laughs> well, what we do know is mm-hmm. they were there at the beginning, mm-hmm. and that up until the end, they were like main guys. So, so now legend has it. I try to make sure everything's is... I can. And I'll put my sources in the links. You always, you can check the sources, but I try to do the best research research I can, but there's always a couple things you find that are really interesting that, you know, I don't know if I want to put it out there, but I feel like needs to go in the show for this one with the purple gang. Legend has it in 1935 when the wire service basically switched over from the uh, purple gang. It was the Lakovali family was what was the original mafia family that took it over from the purple gang that they brought Abe Bernstein into a meeting and sat him down and told him that they were going to officially take over all their rackets and that he could either basically go ahead with it and he'd be allowed to work under their umbrella or there's always the option. There's the purple gang option.
3: Right. So you know, the kind of choices you all used to give the people. <laughs>
1: yeah. So pick one. Right. <laughs> so it seems like Abe Bernstein was able to operate for the rest of his life. Not only as under but almost assisted by like it seems like the Detroit mafia it seemed like it worked well with them so the one guy i talked about that fucking was a holdout and was trying to just kept rob- robbing places yeah said that Abe bernstein actually kept him alive for a couple years because like of their diplomatic relationship He was always like hey that's my boy it's cool he fucks up sometimes it's cool and eventually just got to a point in 1937 where they killed him
3: I know that's your boy, but listen, this is time
1: 375. (laughs) It has to stop. (laughs) For real this time. Abe Bernstein also spent the rest of his life committing a huge portion of all the money he made to fighting for the release of uh, his brother Ray for the Collinsworth Massacre. I know they're gangsters. I know they're bad
3: guys and everything like that, but I respect that. I would have done the same thing. I don't know what it is about family in particular anybody that's like really close to you but even if they do something bad you just look at them different than other people yeah you know it's like no that's my brother uh he's made a mistake he's a good kid let's get him out of jail
1: (laughs) you know right so whatever we killed three people you know how many times we killed three people right only three like that's not a reason to go to jail maybe the 10 maybe the
3: 15
1: it's barely a massacre barely a massacre (laughs) is that a media massacre or a mafia <laughs> massacre? So uh, so now we got to do the DEF CON scale. So we know the standard DEF CON scale is 5 to 1. You know, 5 being the lowest, 1 being the highest. On the Bad Guy podcast, nobody's a good guy. So 5 is Lee Murray, who's your crack dealing, kidnapping, bank robber. And 1 was always the Purple Gang. Mm-hmm. So you guys think, now that we've kind of covered the story of the Purple Gang, I mean, you think, like, uh, the standards holds? Still legit number 1, Purple Gang?
2: there was no way you could go over every detail of them. This right. is number one, hands down. I won't drag it out. It's, it's a number one all day.
3: Yeah, I, I definitely agree with Tank, not to mention um, the things they did and the things that they were involved in. So if you just took the massacres and got rid of everything else, and you know, of course, as you mentioned, one of the most famous, the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, whether they were the shooters or not, being involved, creating the setup the whole thing they had their hands in so much they ended up in you know loss of life and things of that sort it's hard not to put them in a one all
0: right flush the bombers get the subs in launch mode we are at defcon one
1: like we said earlier we got the new website badguypodcast.com go check it out links to the sponsors uh six foe you know he did the music lets us use it for his intro uh cancer he's a show contributor he does the mid-roll song he did the cover art and you can hit hit all their links on the website follow us bad guy podcast on instagram and the bad guy pod on twitter you guys got anything before we go no i like the episode i like the coverage i think it was a great job of packing so
3: much into the time frame that we like to do for our podcast so hopefully the
2: listeners liked it they got some good information yeah, I agree. I'm 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 glad to be back with you guys bullshitting about bad guys and man, it's one of my favorite things to
1: do. And when, uh, when when I'm drinking brews, so <laughs> thanks a lot. All right, well, this is say hello to the bad guy. Thanks for coming. Thanks for listening.
0: Yeah, say hello to the bad guy, guy. the good guy coming last place, place. smell that dope when I pass by, I let my money at a fast pass, say say hello to the bad guy, the good guy coming last place, place. place. smell that dope when I I I I I I pass by. bad, my mama had to be dad. Spent my birthdays in the trap. We had to work with what we had. She been working on a raise while trying to raise me like a man. Plus my daddy in the box and all my cousins in the cam. And I don't need a hundred friends. I just want a hundred bands, a hundred jugs, a hundred scams. Ay, ay. So out of money grabbed a hundred hams. Out so of money, grabbed a bunch of <coughs> And bands. I ain't wanna fall victim to that system or the Fuck a day. judge with a grudge. I'm blowing crud for my mental, aid. ay. And I still keep it on me. Run and tell your big homie. First you meet your dead homie, ay. Yeah. Say hello to the bad guy. Bad guy. The good guy coming last place. You smell that dope when I pass by. by. Oh. I like my money at a fast oh. pass. Say hello to the bad guy. Bad I just did the dash, hey, in the fast lane Let my money at a fast pace, look like a drag race Country up in my eyes, right? I'm in my bag, yeah hey. Good girl, bad face, slim no waist, and her ass fake hey. And yeah, she in love with the bad guy hey. But bad bitches never act right hey. She act up until that bag fly Did a turn around and